Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of the scripture for the last time. Not last time, like last, last time, but in this particular series, Letters to a Fledgling Church, the last section of recorded scripture where Paul addresses the Christians at Thessalonica before we step into the next sermon series covering the book of Daniel. we reading six through the end of the chapter together this morning. Paul writes, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. So it was not because we did not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we are with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Paul concludes his correspondence to the Thessalonians with this, that they should avoid idleness by earning their living through hard work. It's the last thing he addresses. They should avoid idleness by earning their living through hard work. If you recall, the last verse of the last section introduces that command obey language, which shows up very prominently here. What does Paul have to say as his last piece of correspondence? Again, he tells the obedient majority to keep away from idlers. Verse 6, he commands them with the authority of Jesus Christ. We're also going to see that in, in verse 12 as well. Two, keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in, accord, and not in accordance with the tradition that you received from us. Notice he's, he's starting not by telling them not to be idle or even addressing the idlers, which he's going to later. He kind of starts in a different order. He starts with addressing the obedient majority, and he's telling them how to interact with this disobedient minority who fall into this category of idleness. He's already addressed this issue when he was at Thessalonica. He already addressed it in 1 Thessalonians. Apparently, I know it's hard to believe, that even when an apostle commands people to do things, they don't do it. And so here he is for a third time, and this is the longest, most extended section in the Thessalonian letters where he talks about idleness. 
She's going to address them explicitly, but not before telling them how to interact. Remember, there was some speculation about why they were idle. We talked about this. Why exactly? What was going on? We don't know. The best guess, I think, and a lot of commentators tend to uh, agree, is because of their understanding of the return of Christ. You know how much the day of the Lord has figured into this series. Uh, the, 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 the best suggestion seems to be that because the Lord Jesus could return in uh, you know, at a moment they were not expecting, like a thief in the night, you know, they thought, well, you know what, it's not the best time to start a career path. Okay, my job is, my, my time is not best spent going to work. So they are playing truant from work, and Paul is serious about addressing it. Now, the keep away here, similar to the have nothing to do with in verse 14, certainly admits of a spectrum. Let's talk about the spectrum. On one side of the spectrum would be something like this, don't make eye contact with that person. Don't even speak a word to that person. That could be a one understanding of the spectrum of have nothing to do with. On the other far end of the spectrum might just be something like don't do anything, don't engage in their sin with them. And, and it seems to me that the context here is some, somewhere certainly in the middle. It suggests that um, it suggests that we're not talking about pretending someone dropped off the face of the earth. But it means that their interactions with this disobedient minority are not supposed to communicate that they are accepting of their explicit and persistent disobedience of the commands of Scripture as a Christ follower. That's what that's what they have nothing to do with seems to suggest in this context. And I'm not that they're not supposed to associate them in a manner that communicates something in a manner that communicates that, hey, we're. Everything is okay, and I'm following Jesus faithfully, and, and oh yeah, and so are you too. It's like, don't communicate with them, be it together with them in social congress or whatever you want to make of it in a way that communicates that. And we'll return to that kind of at the end of the passage. There's more to be said there. He adds to the command after citing the tradition that they gave him, his own example. His own example. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you. So he's holding up himself and his ministry associates as an example. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. We weren't taking handouts. But with toil and labor we worked day and night, that we may not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, he says, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. And so in keeping with his ministry policy, remember the same thing that was happening at Corinth, and they were kind of peeved about it, but, but desiring to both be an example and to not be accused as a religious money-grubbing freeloader, um, Paul did not take financial support. He did not take any handouts from the Thessalonian church. And instead, he and his colleagues worked hard, and they worked long hours in order to be self-sufficient. In order to be self-sufficient. That's the pattern that he lays down in his ministry. And we see that when he moves on to another city, he is fine with getting support, but it's not why he's laying the foundation, because optics matter, okay? And examples matter. However, importantly, in verse 9, he does mention that they had every right to do so. They are not another just traveling preaching team that you would have had there in the first century. They are apostles. Paul, big A apostle, whatever you think of Timothy and Titus, little A uh, servants, those who are sent kind of apostles. And because of who they were, they were entitled to this, but they didn't take it. 
because sometimes there's something more important at stake than what you're entitled to and that you could rightly demand what is rightly yours. This was worth it to set an example and so that they would not be a burden to anyone. Okay. The importance of this cannot be denied for them, nor can it be denied for us. And apparently they delivered to them a bit of an ultimatum. That's what it looks like. They delivered them a bit of an ultimatum here when they were present doing ministry. For when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. I want to pause and think about how serious this is. I want to think about its implications for coming alongside other people. Okay? Paul is saying something that is, I would say it's extreme. We can either believe it or not. We can believe the man said this and held the line and was dead serious, or that this is flowery language. But let's just appreciate it for what it is here. He says, if you are someone not willing to work, and that is key. He's talking about people who can't be totally self-sufficient for any variety of reasons, disability, age, whatever. He's talking about someone who doesn't want to. He's talking about someone who doesn't want to. If anyone is not willing to work. but so In other words, that seems to be the important part. The picture that emerges is this. Able-bodied or not. Paul expects people to be doing all that they realistically can do relative to their situation to be self-sufficient, not dependent on anyone else or anything else. And if they can't do that, if they are not willing to do everything they can realistically be expected to do, even if that wouldn't result in total self-sufficiency, if you are not doing everything you can do, you get to be on the perpetual fasting diet that eventually ends in starvation. He says, if you have the ability to contribute to your to being self-sustaining, contribute to it, and you choose to be idle instead, reasons aside, he doesn't give any reasons. Reasons aside, if you have the ability to contribute, to help yourself and to be more self-sustaining, and you just say, I don't want to. I don't want to. You choose to be idle instead. You can starve. And hopefully meet Jesus at the end of the diet. Do you see how this is pretty serious? This is a hard but a very important word here that highlights a very important principle. And I want to apply it right now instead of the end of the verse. Have you ever been in a situation where you've asked someone to do something, come alongside someone who seems to be in need for whatever reason? You have asked them to lift a finger or a hand as the case may be, to do something to help themselves. Okay? I'm happy to help. Could you take these steps? Because it seems to me that these are realistic things that you could actually do. And I'll help you here. And, and what happens is, they are idle towards that counsel, that request. And yet, they continue to ask for your help to get on in life. To get on with things. Could be friend, could be a family member, could be a colleague, whatever. Who it is doesn't matter. The principle is the same. They need help. You have a loving heart you're wanting to help. But maybe you start to feel used. Maybe you justifiably start to feel taken advantage of. 
And then maybe at a certain point, you give, like Paul, an ultimatum. You say, listen, I've asked you and I've asked you to do these things. I'm not asking you to part the Red Sea. I'm just asking you to fill in the blank, whatever it is. And you continually do not do it. And so if you don't do this, I am not going to, I am no longer willing to do this. Because my help is becoming enabling. And guess what happens when you give that ultimatum? I can't believe you would say that to me. I thought you loved me. Who says that? I need help. All of a sudden, the narrative turns. And this hits my, oh, it hits my empaths the worst. The people with the super soft hearts. If I've touched your sleeve, I've touched your heart. You can't bear to have someone look at you and say, I thought you loved me. How could you treat me like this? Who does this? It's like a knife, like a dagger. A dagger in your heart. You start to second guess. So I'm playing out kind of the whole narrative. I'm showing you how this works in real life. And you start to second guess. Maybe I've been too harsh. I mean, after all, if I hold the line here, this person's going to be evicted or lose their job or descend into depression like they said they were, or whatever the case is. And then you give in and say, oh, I need to be loving. I need to be loving. And you give in because you have a kind heart mixed with a heart that may struggle to stand strong against the false accusations of someone for whom your generosity has become enabling. You give in because you have a very kind heart mixed with a heart that may struggle to stand strong against the false accusations against someone for whom your generosity has become enabling. And here's what I want to say. If you find yourself in this situation, and everyone likely in the run of life will, at some point, maybe this isn't your season, great. But if, but if this is you, let me just say this. I want you to evaluate your love of the party you're considering by the judgment of sober-minded people who can encourage you and how you're loving this person and see things what they are and not evaluate it from the blistering criticism of the party who has slipped into taking advantage of you. Even if they didn't mean to, and that's not how it started out, or they're unaware that they're doing it because they're socially aloof. And to the rest of you, I'll ask, when this kind of thing comes home, maybe literally, can you stand on a principle like this at some point? And I'm not saying it's at hello. But can you stand on a principle like this at some point and issue a love-compelled ultimatum so that your loving service towards someone does not enable and facilitate their lack of willingness to help themselves and be self-sufficient and be better? Will you be, are you willing to be called unloving for it? And will you be willing to let the consequences be the consequences even if it means someone not eating? Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. It's a hard word. Paul ends the section with the part we might have expected him to begin it with, acknowledging the idlers and rebuking them. He says in verse 11, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. The, the play on words is, is kind of, it's fairly well preserved in the English, right? You hear that busy, repeated, 
Okay, in Greek, it's better because it's working as that's repeated. So in the Greek, it's even better. He says it's something like this. I heard, I heard some of y'all been working. Working your way around Thessalonica, getting into people's business and everything. That's, that's how it is in the Greek. The work is the part that's repeated in the play on words. Not, not busy, but we don't have a way to do that in English. But that's what he's saying. I heard some of y'all are working for sure. Yeah, you're, you're working real hard to get into other people's business. And to those people, once more, he says, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. You all are, I take it, familiar with the concept of being voluntold. You know, voluntold. This is, this is the near cousin of voluntold. This is Paul's encourage command. This is the encourage command. I want to encourage you. To do this. And of course he ties it with command language. Again. And many times I just want to say. When you see Paul encouraging people. In these moral exhortations. This is what it is. It's, the, it's not the voluntold. It's the encourage command. All right. He encourages them. Authoritatively. In the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just his preference. To do their work quietly. Just like we talked about in 1 Thessalonians, I don't mean like lack of volume to be a mousy kind of a person. The idea is not to be socially loud. Not having a loud life. Put your head down and do your work so that the best of your ability, you will be self-sufficient. To the best of your ability. That you are controlling everything you can control. Doing everything you can do to be self-sufficient regardless of how much more help after that you might need. And then he turns back to the obedient majority. And what does he have to say? He has an encouragement and he has some instructions for them. The first, he says, as for you, brothers, in context clarifies, he's talking about the obedient majority now, not the idlers. Do not grow weary in doing good. He, he encourages them. He says, y'all who have listened, you all who are serving well, keep it up. Keep doing those things. Keep doing those things. He's happy about it. He has celebrated how, how their faith has exploded and their love for each other has grown. And so he celebrates, hey, those of you who have responded to our message well, keep it up. Keep it up. Do not grow weary in doing good. That's the encouragement. And then there's instruction about, again, how they are to interact with the disobedient idle minority that takes us back to verse 6. Similar theme. It's going to get a little bit more concrete expression. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take something in like special note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Now, similar to the keep away language, verse 6, the have nothing to do with them should be understood on the spectrum of potential meaning as the context suggests, and it doesn't suggest a total social cutoff. In fact, I would say the next verse requires it not be a total social cutoff. But instead, to repeat the principle from verse 6, that the idea is, and by the way, this book ends the section, right? 
This idea bookends this section. When people who are claiming to follow Christ continue to walk in unrepentant sin that calls into question their profession of faith, we are to cut off certain kinds or certain kinds of interaction, certain kinds of togetherness and association that suggest that they are in right relationship with God and by extension the church and us as well if we're part of the obedient majority by the grace of God. And in a word, this is, this is what has been called church discipline. That's why we read Matthew chapter 18. You hear that language there. It's similar in terms of having nothing to do with. Why act, though, in a way that the outside world, and trust me, I know because I have fielded the shocked responses of people, why act in a way that the outside world, at least, would say is not inclusive, it's not accepting, it's not loving? I've, I've talked about church discipline, and I've talked with people about those who are under church discipline, and they, they can't believe it. They're like, you're a pastor. The, ch- the church is for everyone. You, just, you meet people where they are. It's about acceptance. They're half right about that. But I would say that verse 15 helps us understand the gracious and merciful aspect. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Do not warn him, excuse me, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. The driving purpose of church discipline is not punitive. It's not punishment. It's not church version of timeout. Okay? It is to correct. It is redemptive. It is to see someone come back and repent and be restored. And it is this, this idea of having nothing to do with them in this way is so that the person feels the kind of estrangement that sin creates in hopes that such this, a feeling will convict them of their sin. It will cause a godly grief that leads to repentance because they are being reckoned outside the camp. And that they will return. Maybe on a practical level, if you're trying, like, what is, what's going on here? Like, practically, what's the working mechanic? Let me say that th- maybe one way to think of it is this, that if, if you, if a, when a disobedient person so described is interacting with the, maj- the majority of the church who are obedient, both parties should feel or be aware that there's an elephant in the room, even if it's not discussed. Maybe that's a real practical way to say it. Even when not mentioned at all, neither party should do anything in any setting to suggest that there is no elephant or that it's one of the cute little baby elephants that's attractive or that it's so tiny it can just be overlooked in charity. The abiding dynamic that this is supposed to create is the elephant. And I know the imagery is a bit humorous. It's the dynamic, though, of that abiding elephant at one level separates so that someone feels their disconnectedness and that, that is that idea of shame. It's not just that I sin like everyone else. It's because of the manner in which I'm sinning unrepentantly in this way that my sin sets me apart from the camp. That's that's when you feel shame. And it is the hope that they are called back. Let me just mention that church discipline may be a new thing for some of you, some of you here visiting. Let me just briefly say that without church discipline, aside from the fact that the Bible suggests uh, commands to practice it, it doesn't suggest it, um, without church discipline, church membership becomes meaningless. 
It really does. Anyone can just sign up. Come as you go, leave as you want, live as you please. Who cares about church membership then? There's no accountability. It communicates that, no, you can just live however you want and we'll affirm you in your sin while we pray for you or something. The, the, the purity of the church indwelt Christ followers is ridiculed. And although it sounds culturally sentimental, it's not loving. It's not conducive to holiness to watch someone plunge headlong into sin and to pat them on the back while they do so. And so far from being mean-spirited, church discipline is motivated by a desire to preserve the holiness of the church and to see Christ formed in the heart of someone. Call them back. Paul closes with benediction where he takes the pen. He takes the pen, whoever he's been dictating to. Use his own hand to write it. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. Lord, be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's hard for anyone to walk away from this benediction, certainly any pastor, not craving these three things for the church, isn't it? People would know the peace of God, the presence of God, the grace of God. Anyone who says, no, I don't really want to know any of those things. No one who says, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think that we could use any more of the peace, presence, or grace of God. My prayer is that our church knows the peace of God, the presence of God, and the grace of God, collectively and individually. That people taste those things in their own personal walk with the Lord, but they also taste them together insofar as we are a corporate body. Paul wants the Thessalonians to know these particular things as they stand firm and avoid idleness by earning their living through hard work. What is there to say about this final word? I just mentioned two things. One is the importance of hard work. We were designed to work, you and I. We were. We were designed to work. Work was assigned before the fall. That's why we read Genesis. Before the fall. Before Genesis 3. It is built into how we were supposed to function in life before God. Bear fruit and multiply. Rule and subdue. That's the job description. Have a bunch of sex and rule the world. That's not doesn't sound like a bad day at the office to me. But guess what? Sin creeps in. Sin creeps in. Makes work hard. Makes everything more difficult than it sounds. But work is not a result of the fall. Harder work than it would have been is a result of the fall. Work is something we were made for. Doing, forming, shaping, bringing order out of chaos, fixing in other words, although work is now harder than it was ever supposed to be, and when I say work, by the way, I'm not, I don't know about your particular job or your particular career path. When you think work, you're like, oh, I don't like going to my work. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the concept of work, working, working. It's not, so, so 
because this was something given before the fall, it shouldn't be seen as something that gets in the way of what God has called you to. What do you think of that? Your work, you, the way you think about work, not to be confused with the job that you go to right now that you're just like, uh, eh. But work, in general, should not be something that gets in the way of what God has called you to. You might be called to a different kind of work than you are currently doing, but here's what you're not called to. A life of vacation. A life of indulgent idleness. No one is, no Christian is called, no Christian is made to spend life sipping margaritas on the beach. That doesn't change just because someone has a bunch of money and can afford to do it. It doesn't change just because someone has a ton of money and could afford to sit around with their trust fund baby and never had to lift a finger to get any money in their bank account. And they couldn't spend all the money that they had in that bank account in, in a 300 years. They, it may be true for that person that they don't need to work in order to have financial means, but they need to work because they're human and they're designed to work. For people who have any kind of ability, the idle life, the, the life of a sluggard, regardless of how it is justified, is not acceptable. Um, we, we, that we are to work hard unto the Lord is a biblical command, but there's, but there's another reason to work hard. And that is that working hard, because it's part of this divine design, it will give you a little, it will give you, you can have multiple, little P purpose under the big umbrella purpose of glorifying God with your life. Little P purpose. They're, they're, not, they're not mutually exclusive. In fact, one works toward the end of the other. You will find something to do. You will feel like you are, you are being, oh, hey, this is fulfilling. I am moving towards something. I am accomplishing something. I'm making something. I'm fixing something. I'm ordering something. I'm raising something. I'm planning. I'm doing something where I have effort towards a goal. Because that's what God created us for. And it doesn't, it's not just a piece of self-help talk to say you're gonna, you will feel more fulfilled doing this. No, it's not self-help talk. It's a biblical theological anthropology. That's what it is. We were made for it. We were made as the vice regents of the Creator. We, we, we press deeply into the image of God when we work, when we fashion, when we organize, when we apply purpose to chaos. We feel fulfillment in those things and we accomplish those things and work towards those things because we were, we were made for it. So my point is this. You may have a job that you can't stand and the reason that you continue to do it is because you have the laudable desire to provide for your family. Excellent. Great call continuing in that job until you find another opportunity that you might like better. Great. But here's the thing. Do you have any little P ways of working? Do you have any little p goals, perhaps, to work toward? And if you don't, what kind of creator fulfillment purposes could you find? Could you commit yourself to alongside your career? With Maybe you're at, a, again, a job that you don't particularly like. It doesn't bring a particular amount of fulfillment. Fair enough. But are there other ways that you could work? Are there things that you could get into? Or is there a path that you could take? that would provide that for you, because I promise you will be more fulfilled as a Christian. And again, that's not self-help talk. That's right out of biblical anthropology and a, and a theology of work. 
We are made to work. Hard work is important. To whatever extent that you can, which doesn't mean that everyone has the same extent, but to whatever extent you can, are you putting your hand to the plow as a student? Are you putting your hand to the plow as someone raising children with a purpose in the home, going into the office, spreadsheets, developing and coding, whatever you're doing? Get to work for the glory of God. The second is this, not growing weary. Not growing weary. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. I heard one person say that if I don't walk away from a sermon feeling convicted or beat up, either I wasn't listening well or the sermon wasn't good. And what I want to suggest is that is a very bad evaluative strategy for Sunday morning. Because the truth is, while everyone should always be sensitive to how the Lord may work through the proclaimed word of God in their own hearts, and where what I say may touch your heart, may convict you, may in fact make you sometimes by the Spirit of God feel targeted, which is never the case, if you're wondering. Despite that, I want everyone to be sensitive to that. In many cases... Many of you don't need to hear one more new thing to start doing every Sunday. You don't need to have one one more thing to stop doing as your takeaway. One more practice to adopt to be really faithful or something like that. Some of you, what you need to hear is what Paul tells the Thessalonians, the obedient majority is, don't grow weary, you're doing well. Don't grow weary in the good that you're doing. But what's the next step for my Christian growth trajectory? For some people, there are going to be some very concrete action items, things that you need to stop doing and cut out of your life because they're destroying your soul. Positively, there will be some things that you can start doing for some people. Very concrete, very specific things that are not there, that are out of place, that are distorted. But there are plenty of folks already doing or not doing those things. And your next step is, wake up tomorrow and do it again. Wake up tomorrow, do it again. And don't grow weary in it. And maybe that's the hardest part. Maybe that's the hardest part. I've mentioned the three-step Christian waltz before. Repent, believe, fight. Repent, believe, fight. Repent, believe, fight. Shanti and I ended up, and I don't know how, and you won't either, but we ended up taking a dance lesson years ago, probably eight, maybe nine years ago, at a dance place out in Murfreesboro. I don't know how that happened, but we were there. Anyways, the teacher was teaching the the waltz, this three-step dance. And so I didn't know how to waltz. I was like, okay, well, I, got, I guess I got to learn. Nothing, no time like the present to learn the waltz, you know? And so she teaches me these three steps, and Chanti's better at it than I am, but I'm making it work. And uh, I remember doing the waltz to the music, and I guess they just, maybe it was a teaser class because it was like the waltz, and like that was it. I remember the music going and waltzing, 
And I remember asking Shanti, okay, one, two, three, one. I was like, how long do we do this? Like, how long do we do this? And she says something like, until the music stops. And as I was looking, I was thinking this passage and not growing, not growing weary. It's just, it seems to me like just the perfect illustration. How long do I do this waltz, pastor? Repent, believe, fight. Repent, believe, fight. Some of you need to hear until the music stops. Three more steps. Repent, believe, fight. What's the next step? Repent, believe, fight. Repent, believe, fight. Repent, believe, fight. How long until the music stops and we sing a new song, Revelation 14.3? And in that song, there's no repentance. There's no faith. There's no fight. Because all things will have been made new. Is there another dance for me though, Pastor? Maybe a meaningful new twirl that I haven't learned yet. For some of you, specific and minor adjustments aside, the answer is going to be genuinely, with those caveats, no. What you need to do is pray for the strength and the focus and attention to, and here's the key word, crisply execute the moves one more day. Repent truly and cleanly. Believe firmly and fiercely. Fight unwaveringly. Repent, believe, fight one more day. Don't grow weary in doing good and know that God will be delighted by your faithfulness. Let's pray. God, we desire to please you with our life, with our work. We pray that you would sustain us by your grace. When we grow tired or where we grow weary or we, we're looking for lightning in a bottle for our spiritual life. Or, or I pray that everyone would take inventory of their own soul and certainly that they would look at areas where they need to begin doing certain things, repent, stop doing different things for whatever reason. But Lord, that insofar as we're doing good, that you'd give us the strength to go one more day. Repent, believe, fight until the music stops. Until the music stops and all is made new. We ask these things in Jesus' name.